0: To the Nurses for Healthy Environments podcast. My name is Beth Schenk, nurse scientist and healthcare sustainability leader in Missoula, Montana. On the podcast, I interview nurses working at the intersection of health and environment. Today, I'm speaking with nurse practitioner Billy Rosa, speaker, author, and PhD candidate in nursing at the University of Pennsylvania. I have been honored to have worked with Billy on a couple of writing projects related to the UN Sustainable Development Goals and Climate Change. He is committed, creative, and productive, making many contributions to the profession of nursing and to the world in general. I think you will enjoy this wide-ranging conversation. I know I did. Welcome to the podcast, Billy Rosa. I've been so excited to talk with you. Why don't you start by giving us a little bit of background about how'd you get into nursing, what has been your focus, and what are you working on right now?
1: Mm, So thank you for having me. Um, I'm very excited to be here with you, Beth. Um, So yeah, so I actually got into nursing as a second career. I actually went to NYU um, as an undergraduate for theater, so I was actually trained as a professional dancer and performer and actor and had a sweet little career for a few years and, um, actually sustained a pretty awful injury. I actually fractured my left hip and wasn't walking for a really long time. Um, and kind of during that process, um, (laughs) it was kind of a, a, mini death, if you will, um, in a lot of ways. And, um, During that process, really started to seek out healing environments and actually went into massage therapy school for a while just to kind of learn about this instrument. I had kind of broken um, this body and be around healing people and learn about um, what my body needed to do in order to put itself back together. And during the clinical rotations of massage therapy school, because we were doing clinical massage, I had just incredible outcomes with clients in the uh, massage clinics. And one woman in particular who had, you know, chronic lifelong asthma uh, and was so dependent on her emergency meds and after an hour's work on her. Uh, intercostals and her trapezius muscles and her diaphragm actually ended up sending an, a letter into the clinic about a week later saying, you know, it was the first week of her adult life that she hadn't had to use uh, an emergency inhaler. And I started to reflect on, well, how could I do this for more people? How could be I be a part of this um, well-being for for larger numbers of people? And Um, found nursing while I was in massage therapy school, went right into nursing school. And I've been a nurse for just over 10 years now. So I actually started in critical care. I was at the bedside in critical care for about four years, uh, worked through the clinical ladder in um, medical and surgical ICUs in a a major uh, New York City academic medical center, and then became an educator of those critical care centers for a year and kind of was climbing this trajectory of professional development realizing I wasn't on the right path for me and heard about this great opportunity to become a part of a healthcare capacity building project in Africa in Rwanda and was offered a faculty slot. So I basically picked up and moved to Africa for a year and just was the most amazing year. Um, came back after that and did a palliative care fellowship as a nurse practitioner and went right into a full-time PhD program, which I'm finishing up right now. So I'm actually a PhD candidate at the University of Pennsylvania, and I defend my dissertation on March 3rd. So it's coming up.
0: Wow. Well, first of all, congratulations on that. Um, but also a very interesting um, background. And uh, it's I think it's often the case that something personal takes us into nursing, which is so phenomenally intimate. I think sometimes that the when people think about nurses they they you know think about the visible tasks and whatnot, but I have been struck many times at the immediate intimacy we have with with people we care for, families, even our communities so that's that's a really interesting background
1: yeah, and it was it was one of those it was one of those situations and experiences where i mean every time I walk into a patient's rooms to this day and somebody is in pain or discomfort or can't walk, or I see them struggling with kind of, uh, with that experience of loss of losing something that is meaningful to them, whether that's physical capacity or, um, the ability to work or, you know, just the things that bring them joy in life. I just so deeply connect to that. It's just such an uh, such a reminder of, of how we're all in the same boat in a certain way. And even though the patients we care for are kind of inherently vulnerable due to their illness or whatever they're going through at the moment, I mean, you know, we're all kind of, we're all fragile in the same way. It could be us or a loved one in a second. So it's a, it's a really, I'm so grateful as a nurse that I had that experience because I'm, I'm always kind of a, a pennies throw away from remembering what it, what it's like to um, really be dependent on others for your care.
0: Yes, that's that's a great reminder for all of us. Um, I want to. I have a number of questions for you, but first, could you just tell us what your PhD program is? Your your study. Your uh... oh,
1: sure, yeah. Um, I am um, currently the PhD program at the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing. I'm also working on a master of bioethics. Um, at the same time, but my research is uh, a secondary analysis of my mentor's work, uh, which was an NIH-funded study that originally looked at cancer pain disparities between African-American and Caucasian patients um, in the outpatient oncology setting. And so I'm doing a secondary analysis of her data um, and specifically looking at how patients prioritize their beliefs around um, pain medication use. any kind of analgesic, including strong opioids, um, how they prioritize the beliefs and how those beliefs predict their objective adherence behaviors. So it's it's really interesting that the sample is uh, just about 42% African American, so it's very representative of a typically under historically underrepresented uh, underrepresented excuse me group um, in the literature and. Um, really focused on the patient perspective in terms of beliefs. So when it comes to the opioid addiction epidemic, a lot of our discussion is on uh, how clinicians and healthcare systems can monitor and prescribe and manage better. Um, but we know very little about the, the patient side of things and how their beliefs inform their opioid use. So I'm hoping it'll be a meaningful contribution to the literature.
0: Yeah, I'm sure it will. Is, is the data qualitative?
1: Um, it's quantitative. They We used a... Um, Uh, a barriers questionnaire that's very well used since the early 2000s in the cancer pain literature. And um, my advisor during that original NIH grant had turned it into survey questions where uh, using this technique called max diff scaling, maximum difference scaling. And it's a consumer preference trade-off approach, basically, where subjects in the study uh, were asked to rate beliefs um, according to what they thought of most Uh, as most important and as least important in relation to their pain medicine. So things like "Mm, pain medicine keeps me from knowing what's going on in my body. That was actually the the top-ranked belief. Um, Or pain meds harm my immune system. Um, Or if doctors pay attention to my pain, they'll forget to treat my cancer. Um, And so through this trade-off methodology, they actually ranked which beliefs were most predominant for them. And then the second half of the study is looking at um, using uh, regression modeling to see um, how those beliefs were related to their objective adherence behaviors using uh, a medication event monitoring system.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it will help um, be a contribution to, to our science today, especially as we're really struggling to understand use patterns and um, other elements associated with, with opioid use. So that's really interesting.
1: Called- we just published the first paper out of um, the dissertation, actually, and it was very interesting because it's what I see as a palliative care nurse practitioner. The the most predominant belief, as I mentioned, was um, taking pain medicine keeps me from knowing what's going on in my body, mm-hmm. and the belief that... People who take pain medicines for cancer will get addicted was only moderately important for both. We did a cluster analysis for both clusters. So across the sample of 207 outpatient oncology um, patients, you know, the addiction concern was only moderately important, mm-hmm. which is kind of number one on all of the clinician uh, radars. Mm-hmm. And yet, this belief that if I take pain medicine, I'm not going to know what's going on in my body was was so important. And if you think about it, it makes sense, right? Because patients use pain as an indicator of whether their cancer is getting worse, whether their cancer is getting better. Um, And that idea of masking that pain was something that was really troubling to them. So it's very, I think it's very interesting and really gets us back to a conversation about what patient-centered care looks like and how those beliefs are so important to them.
0: Yes, it's really interesting. So was that, um, tell me a bit more about your time and your experience in Rwanda.
1: Oh, the year that changed my life. Um, (laughs) So it was the Human Resources for Health program. That's the program I was there with. It was a seven-year initiative that uh, the Rwandan Ministry of Health actually brought um, to the forefront, wanting to partner with uh, 16 academic medical centers and nine schools of nursing, uh, a few schools of public health and dentistry. And basically, it was a seven-year initiative with the goals, the overarching goals to increase the quantity of healthcare workers in Rwanda, improve the quality of their education, and really decrease overall dependence on foreign aid. So it was it was a program that I could I really believed in. I really believed in the values of the program. It was based on um, respectful and inclusive partnership. It used a twinning model where we were um, partnered directly with a quote unquote twin um, on the ground in Rwanda. So the expectation was that you know i'm i'm we were all there to learn just as much as we were there to teach and share and i was there for year 4 of 7 so i worked as a clinical educator in the intensive care unit in the rwanda military hospital and i also worked as faculty at the university of rwanda and we were we were basically starting the first masters program for nursing in the country so we had eight specialty tracks um, and in 2017, we graduated the first cohort of master's prepared nurses in Rwanda that were Rwanda trained. Um, uh, 110 students graduated in 2017. And I believe the second cohort is preparing to graduate. Um, <clears throat> and it was just a year that kind of changed everything about how I saw um, not only health and healthcare, but also partnership and, and international programming and partnership and Um, really how the global agenda informs what we as nurses do um, and how we go about uh, really ensuring health equity for people. I I mean, I think it just, for me, it just redefined all of these terms we use all the time um, to live in a completely different environment like that. It really just helped me reevaluate so many things I thought I understood in the past.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it was really eye-opening. I know, Billy, that you've been writing a bit more about sustainable development goals and a shift in your thinking, it sounds like, from global, in global perspectives to include planetary health. Could you talk about both of those concepts and I guess really how your experience in Rwanda might have influenced that or just what you're thinking these days about those
1: Sure. I think, you know, when I was when I was in Rwanda, I mean, it was such a a humbling experience. You know, there is that kind of for me, at least, and and a lot of colleagues who've worked internationally from the states that I've spoken to share this experience. When you're traveling, um, particularly to a resource poor setting, um, there is that certain, I don't know, implicit assumption that somehow I am the expert bringing this expert knowledge um, and then you get there and you're kind of humbled by the, the context of, um, of what it's like to be in an environment um, with, with no resources, with, where issues like poverty and hunger and education and inequality and um, environmental threats to well-being are so at the forefront of everyday dialogue because You know, in the U.S., my experience has been, and again, I'm a white privileged male living on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, so even here, my perspective is somewhat slanted from um, maybe people who um, struggle with access to care, et cetera, or are of a racial or ethnic minority. But here, I feel like a lot of the health dialogue is about, you know, health promotion, public health. We talk a lot about... um, the clinical training for nursing is about blood pressure control and glucose monitoring and um, acute care delivery, et cetera. And all of a sudden you're you're in this setting. um, For me, it was Rwanda where, you know, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs is like, people need to eat today. People need to get clean water today. People um, are getting sick because they don't have clean water and sanitation. Um, You just, your whole paradigm of, of the connection between how uh, the social and the environmental determinants of health and their direct link to hospitalization and health outcomes and illness um, and premature death is just, uh, I mean, it's just so glaringly different. And so while I was there, what I started to realize in talking with physicians and nurses and other healthcare workers, um, also people in other sectors, like in finance and agriculture, um, people, we're not really interested in what we were what we're doing in the U.S. because I guess you know I mean, I mean the research shows internationally we don't do a, a a fantastic job in healthcare our outcomes are pretty poor in comparison to other high income countries but. Um, They were really interested in what the United Nations was talking about, what the World Health Organization was talking about, and the sustainable development goals, obviously, that come in the wake of the Millennium Development Goals, um, were what was on everybody's mind. And I started to realize that at that time in 2015 to 2016, when I was living there, I I had never heard of the Sustainable Development Goals. They had just kind of come into action in January of 2016. And... You know, I realized that my clinical work before that had very little to do with the Millennium Development Goals, the MDGs, and but the whole health infrastructure was kind of based around these global goals out of the World Health Organization, these um, broader global agenda action items. And so I started to think about why colleagues in the U.S. were not talking about the SDGs, why... Um, it seemed that most other countries in the world were really attuned to them, aware of them, discussing them, uh, identifying the correlation between them and how they approach health. And yet, again, in the U.S., I didn't feel like people were doing that. And, you know, I think the broader conversation about the environment was seeing things like, you know, things like that I had never really considered. It sounds naive to say that, but things like, Um, deforestation, right, which is life on land is one of the sustainable development goals, how deforestation had contributed to the Ebola epidemic and the Ebola outbreak, um, because it put human beings in closer touch to these very virulent viral strains. Um, how, uh, life underwater, another one of the goals, you know, how the major lakes in Africa have been overfished and fisher fishermen can't make livings because, uh, and people are going hungry because there's not enough fish in these lakes. Um, and learning how um, colleagues from Southeast Asia and, and the Maldives, for example, like the, the islands are sinking because of sea level rise. And so all of these things like blood pressure control and glucose monitoring is kind of secondary when you think about people's civilizations literally going underwater. And so for me, it was just these, this huge light bulb moment um, where you know Nightingale said the the role of the nurse is to put the patient in the best light um, for nature to heal them, and it really started my reflection on what will be the state of nature when nurses are putting patients in that best light, um, how ready and available will nature be to allow us to heal? Um, and so I started reflecting on the sustainable development goals, started writing a blog series for Springer Publishing, and then they wanted to turn it into a book. Um, and that book was one of the most exciting academic ventures I've ever had because uh, I've never had a project come together so quick, literally, um, with, over 40 authors signed on and we put a book together within like 12 weeks. Um, I've never seen people get so excited about um, raising awareness about the sustainable development goals and the role of nursing. Um, And that book came out and it's been this like growing dialogue ever since. We just had a year-long editorial series in public health nursing um, about the SDGs and we just had a special edition of Nursing Outlook focused on the SDGs specifically for U.S. nurses. And we're starting a new bi-monthly column for the American Journal of Nursing about the sustainable development goals. And then there's been all this consultation work with different American organizations, integrating the SDGs into nursing education and practice and policy, um, getting organizations to release statements of support and raise awareness. There's an initiative out of the American Academy of Nursing about the SDGs. So it's been a really exciting time, but it was really living in that environment that kind of... I don't know, took the blinders off and and connected me to the greater issues that are confronting us both socially, environmentally, and economically.
0: Interesting, and and so well said. Um, And yeah, I really, I see it similarly, um, partly probably because I had the great good fortune to do a significant amount of traveling earlier in my career. uh, Traveled for about 10 years to many countries around the world. And and really even at that time, which was back in the '90s and early 2000s, I was um, sort of obsessed with the question about how how will we and how are we living on this planet? Because you know that was before we talked as much about climate change, but but clearly the environmental degradation around the world was visible, and the impacts on ecosystem services. So some of those things you've described with life. Uh, underwater and life uh, in the forest, um, and it's just been a fascinating, it is the question that, that I continually uh, circle around, how, how are we best able to live on this planet, what are we up against when so much of our planetary homeostasis is um, out of balance, and what uh, will the near future and far future bring? So I and I I I really like the Sustainable Development Goals as well, and have had um, several conversations recently about why is it that we don't discuss these in the U.S. And just one other quick quick um, thing, bef- and I want your I'd like to get your perspective on this. Uh, several of us were at the um, civil society meeting, the UN civil society meeting in Salt Lake City this summer, and we presented a panel on nursing and climate change and um i it was very interesting. This was the first time that meeting went when it was held in the u s. It was the first time it was outside of New York. and um we were we were kind of a, kind of surprised that there was so little focus on health. We were working on sustainable goal number eleven about resilient cities. and um so we were a little bit surprised that there was so little focus on health, but realized that that's partly because. The World Health Organization has more of a focus on health, perhaps, than the civil society. But also, I was really struck with the incredible security. And, uh, I mean, the, it was cordoned off for blocks around. We had to have multiple passes through metal detectors, and no one could be in without their badge. And uh, my sense was that, that part of the reason why uh, the Sustainable Development Goals and the UN more broadly are less accepted in the U.S. is because of politics. What do you think?
1: I, I mean, I think that's fair. I think some of it is politics, but I also think a, a huge part of it, and I, I, this sounds so simple, but I think a huge part of it is, well, let me put it this way. I had a conversation with um, the CEO of one of our major um, policy organizations, nursing policy organizations here in the States um, two years ago, and she said to me very plainly, when we're talking to policymakers, in the US, they are not interested in hearing the word global. They are interested in what's happening for their constituents in their locales, in their communities, in their cities. And unless you can make it meaningful for them, they're not interested. It's not worth their time, energy, or, or their dollars. And I think that, was, I mean, that was such an interesting conversation for me to have because it was really a moment of pause where. I started to understand that people actually don't get that whole concept of local is global. I mean, people don't get the concept of global citizenship. People don't understand that, you know, the things I do as well as the things I don't do, the things I say as well as the things I don't say, the actions I take as well as my inaction, all has a butterfly effect on my local environment, but on on what happens globally in terms of health and the well-being that that is possible for people. And so I think what's fascinating to me, because I do have to say a few years ago, I got tremendous resistance when I was pushing this SDG um, agenda forward in nursing. I had a lot of people tell me I was wasting my time. Nobody was interested. Now it's really taken off like wildfire, but it was because people were not seeing the link between, for example, Robert Wood Johnson's culture of health and the SDGs. Um, You know, if you hold them side by side, a culture of health is the sustainable development goals in different language. Um, If you look at different cities' um, health agendas, you know, um, chances are if you you look up any city's health agenda, major urban um, planning, um, a lot of them even use the same colors as the SDG emblems. Um, They are ultimately focused on the same aspects as the broader sustainable development goals. And so I think in terms of politics, to answer your question, it's about how we help our representatives and leaders be able to language the sustainable development goals in a way that's meaningful for their constituents to help them really understand that we're not talking about something different or something out there or something happening in India or Uganda. We are talking about basic human um needs and access to environmental structures that support well-being whether you're living in ohio or you know somewhere in in africa it's all the same stuff and you know i guess if flint michigan hadn't happened or wildfires in california weren't happening or any of the other environmental disasters that have happened in and around the us over the past few years if those hadn't been happening maybe we'd be having a different conversation but um, I think it's about helping people to understand that their politics while d- and the sustainable development goals go hand in hand, that this is about being able to apply the SDGs in very local ways as local citizens, um, and it's not about, um, I guess what I want to say, it's not about achieving the entire agenda nobody's going to achieve all 17 goals and 169 targets on their own this is about what are your priorities in your local community and your local institution and in, um, the hospital that you that you work for um and how do you align yourself with those broader goals and in that way not only are you meeting local goals but you're contributing to the broader global agenda i don't know if that answers the question
0: yeah it's very helpful for sure and and the sdgs are, are are such a helpful framework i mean just as you say if if people uh and organizations and cities and municipalities would use those as even a checkup how are we doing on these issues i think um that would that would um certainly advance um the work that nursing is trying to do as well as many public health you know uh, professionals around the world
1: and we're not doing that great yeah, either, Beth. That's right. You know, like we ranked like 34th, I believe, was the last Sustainable Development Goals Index report in 20. Uh, I think that was the 2018 report. I mean, if you know, if the U.S. was ranking top five, I would say, wow, maybe I understand um, some of the silence around the SDGs. But but we're not even meeting um, what some would consider basic. Um, basic criteria around these goals. I mean, we rank 34th. Think yeah, about that. astonishing. I mean, you know, as one, you know, as one of the world's leaders. Right. Well, we're
0: right now in a, such an interesting time of this explosion of increased awareness about global, if we'll use that word for now, global issues, just on the um, expansion of the internet in the past—what is that? Twenty-five years? Twenty? Twenty-five years? That is such a shift for the the masses, I think. And then, right now, we're in this odd time of of nationalism and people pulling back into their own nations. It's not just our nation, but other nations. I sometimes think that those two things are related. That it's difficult for humanity to change um, consciousness and awareness. As quickly as two decades to really be seeing the entire world sort of in in our in our on our desks and in our living rooms and in our pockets now. It's also clear that the pressure on us is higher. The changes that you described that we're seeing all around the world related to climate, related to biodiversity loss, related to these um, ecosystem services that are declining uh, are you know as I say the pressure's on. So um, the sustainable development goals are are certainly a helpful way to think about that I think.
1: Yeah, and I think you know it's so interesting you said that. I just kind of had an aha moment when you when you were talking about nationalism because I think like this is what happens in this is human behavior in the context of crisis mm-hmm. is people pull into their their Um, home bases and it becomes survival mentality and it becomes about me and my people and my family and my community and that's I think one of the indicators that we are in a crisis globally particularly when it comes to climate change because um, people are truly in survival mode and so how do we shift consciousness and helping people to understand their interconnectedness while really showing compassion for understanding their need to make sure that they are um, communities survive and thrive, um, you know, for generations to to come because it's a real, real threat.
0: That's right. So, so in so to reflect a little bit more on your work um, that we've talked about, your experience in Rwanda, your work with uh, palliative care, your your leadership work, and also this growing pressure that we've just discussed that you're very acutely aware of and are writing about and thinking about. Um, in this context of planetary health, so we put all that together, and um, um, if, you know from my perspective i I, I think about planetary health uh, largely from the environmental side because I see it as such a driver of all the all the outcomes for um, humans for societies and cultures for our financial system, for other species, for our future, etc and um So I just wonder, I mean, it sounds to me like you're saying that you, you, your work is really shifting in this direction. And if so, what does that mean, for instance, for your work with palliative care? How, how does palliative care inform your thinking about planetary health and vice versa? If that's, that's probably a very abstract question that you haven't, you didn't prepare for, but (laughs) I'm curious.
1: (laughs) Um, I think it's, I think the, The question is actually, you know, I was just thinking about this question actually um, recently because I do see kind of my priorities as this idea of global health and and palliative care, which for me makes perfect sense, which is about universal access to palliative care, particularly for people in low resource settings. Um, But then this concept of the SDGs and planetary health. And I think it's very simple. First of all, the whole concept of planetary health, I think people... Miss the second part of it, right? The first part is yes, there's this severe degradation of our air, our water, our land, and this significant loss in biodiversity and ecosystem damage, etc. But the second part of planetary health is that it's not just about the natural resources, you know, according to the the Lancet Commission Rockefeller Foundation report, it is about the wise stewardship of those resources, and so it is about humanity's role in um, using, monitoring, managing, respecting those resources. Um, and so that's just the first part of that. I wanted to, to just say that, you know, we, sometimes we think of the planetary, the planet's health as something outside of human existence and human existence is a major factor <laughs> in how those resources are being used and exploited, um, and, and irresponsibly, um, accounted for. Um, I think the, the question you asked about palliative care and how this kind of comes together is for me, palliative care is, is, and it is abstract, but is the paradigm in my opinion, that is rehumanizing the healthcare system. It is one of the only paradigms of care that is truly about patient and human-centered experience, meeting people where they are, um, ascribing plans of care that are based on personal and familial values um, that takes into into consideration not only physical well-being, but mental, emotional, spiritual, existential, social, cultural health and values. Um, and integrates that into how we engage with people, communicate with people, attend to people, um, help them meet their goals, optimize the quality of their life and their comfort and their functionality, um, and really ensure that their life is reflective of what's most important to them and what's most sacred to them. And I think that when we consider how the environment impacts health, I think more readily visible in lower resource settings around the world, where people um, may be more poor than those in the United States, and you can see the direct impact between poor sanitation and health, or you know, um, the biodiversity loss and, and sea level rise and health. Um, I think good palliative care is about rehumanizing their experience and taking all of that into consideration, where, you know. When we're talking with patients about maybe palliative treatment for their cancer or palliative chemo, that might not be the priority. The priority may be um, solidifying their house structure so that their families are safe in the next rainstorm. I mean, it's just things that are that may not be um, <clears throat> in in Billy Rose's immediate paradigm of consideration. And I think that's the the strength of palliative care is that it's all about listening and adapting how we care for people based on what is most important to them so i think palliative care you know in the lancet um commission released a report two years ago 2017 i believe um uh, calling for universal access to palliative care and during this international year of the nurse and midwife um, we we actually just um, had a commentary accepted in the lancet um, that i led with uh, nigel crisp from the uk parliament and Paul Farmer and Eric Krakauer from Harvard, and Dr. Rajagopal Gopal from India, all about optimizing the nursing workforce to ensure universal access to palliative care. And so the nursing workforce is not only at the forefront, because we make up more than 50% of the healthcare infrastructure, not only at the forefront of ensuring universal access to palliative care, but, ins- but what that means to me is, we are at the forefront of rehumanizing a system that can attend to patients and families and communities where they are in the context they find themselves um, while addressing the symptoms of serious illness and at the end of life, um, while considering these broader environmental determinants that are so important to how people live.
0: Mm, it's beautifully stated. I, I love the concept that it is effective at rehumanizing because that's been such a such a challenge in the U.S., particularly meaning healthcare, rehumanizing healthcare. So that gives that takes me into two directions. I'd like to ask you about one. One is, would you describe palliative care? That's um, uh, would you think differently, I guess, about palliative care that is not at the end of life, because we have many circumstances of people learning to live with chronic conditions or learning to, um, uh, in a way, rehumanize in in a way that you mentioned about. Uh, I I'm, I'm not I didn't write this down, but aligning values so that people can live with the most integrity. Um do you see that as different than end of life um, considerations of palliative care?
1: Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think that that is that is one of the the most significant misnomers about palliative care is people um, interchange palliative care with hospice, right? So I one of the ways I like to think about this that I think listeners uh, might appreciate if they're not you know as familiar with palliative care would be to think about palliative care as a model of care that is a holistic approach to optimizing function and comfort um, and quality of life for patients with any serious illness. And hospice and end of life care are really for patients that we think specifically May be in their last six months of life. And so the research and a lot of the initiatives and this idea of universal access to palliative care is really about moving palliative care further upstream in the disease process. So, you know, there are countries that when you are diagnosed with a chronic illness, you get a palliative care consult because palliative care, good palliative care, competent, compassionate, Relationship based palliative care thrives in environments where we have an opportunity to build that relationship over time, where we're not coming into um, that relationship in the context of crisis, um, but actually where we are getting to know, you know, Beth Schenk as she lives and works and plays, as she um, is dealing with these incremental losses early in a disease process, right? This isn't just about somebody who's impacted. By heart failure. This is about somebody who has a history and a story and a narrative and um, uh, maybe a social support system, maybe not, Um, and somebody who is being who they are in the context of this illness. And if palliative care services were made uh, more accessible and available to people further upstream in the disease process, not only would they get better symptom control um, but they'd be able to have open, honest conversations about values, advanced directives, et cetera, earlier on outside of that context of crisis to really make sure that the quality of life they're living is higher into their standards earlier on, apart from the dying process.
0: Yes, very interesting and a, and a lovely way of thinking about it.
1: And I also think I I would, I would also want to add on that is, that this is where palliative care becomes a public health issue Mm -hmm. and where it's tied to a broader global health context so when you think about you know in the united states we're a very individualist society we're all about individual accomplishment not all of us and not all the time but there's a great emphasis on individual accomplishment individual expression um autonomy of the person etc but in most cultures around the world, you know, the focus is on collectivism. I, I am because you are, right? Ubuntu, the whole uh, idea of Ubuntu in Africa, uh, in South Africa, is I am because you are. We live in community, um, and the idea of the individual is not as predominant. And so when somebody in that environment suffers from an, an advanced illness, let's say they're in a rural area with one schoolhouse, I wrote an editorial on this a few years ago um, for public health nursing, let's say there's a, you know, one schoolhouse in a rural area and that schoolmaster has advanced cancer. Well, in the absence of good palliative care, you're going to have, um, a much speedier physical decline, which means a a potential of a schoolhouse shutting down, which means less safety for kids during the day, which means maybe they don't get the one meal that they get there per day. Um, education goes out the window. Um, lots of other economic concerns for parents. Um, and there is a, an entire public health decline of a community because one person didn't have access to better pain management, symptom management, and palliative care that could have kept them optimal and functional and a value to their society longer. Um, and I think that those are some of the connections that we don't always make.
0: Yes, yeah, really interesting and, and so impactful. And happens every day, of course, because that's 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 how life. That's what life is. Is is. So so. I'd like to do a little think piece here. A little, just an exercise to overlay some of what you've said about palliative care, particularly being um, the paradigm that is rehumanizing the healthcare system. What would it mean if we were to pontificate a little on palliative care, or palliative thinking being? the uh, paradigm that also is rehumanizing the planet. So thinking about, I don't I don't really think about the planet as a patient. I know that some people talk about it that way. That's not so much how I think about it. And yet I do think we are needing to th- be able to think much more broadly, much more globally, much more um, omni, basically, uh, if we're going to address some of our current environmental challenges. So what are some thoughts that might come to mind as you think about um, some of the principles of palliative care that you know well, if we were to apply them in a more planetary sense?
1: Oh, my God, I love that question. I really love that question. I think, hmm, I guess, let me say it this way. I think there needs to be a holistic approach to how we understand health, the whole concept of one health. And that is a palliative care mentality. We are Um, There are mental and emotional stressors that human beings and other species are experiencing due to the changes in the planet that affect us um, all at differing levels based on our proximity to it. Um, I mean, the whole whole notion of planetary health and palliative care has huge existential concerns. So spiritual and existential care is a part, one of the, the pillars of palliative care, and um, what's happening with the planet is truly an existential question. It is truly about our existence um, and our ability to exist uh, with good quality of health and um, with safety uh, for for all people everywhere, not just the richest, um, in the in the decades to come. And I think it's also about um, optimizing the functionality of the planet, um, optimizing um, a quality of life that all life forms are entitled to. Um, I think that's really an interesting question and it, and it brings up the whole idea. I've written a lot about this idea of planetary citizenship. You know, a lot of the literature is about global citizenship. And I think that while I continue to use global citizenship as a way of, of articulating our interconnectedness I started writing in the the book on the SDGs a few years ago and have continued to write and speak about this idea of planetary citizenship, um, that it has to move beyond the idea that all human beings are connected. It has to start to move toward, um, I don't want to be pedantic, I invite people to consider moving toward a framework where we truly consider ourselves citizens of a planet on which we are dependent and on which depends on us, um, that we start to express caring, not just for human beings, but for our forests and our oceans and the things that literally allow us to exist. Um, And if we were to make the connections between palliative care and planetary citizenship, I think those connections are really clear. Um, It's about, it's not just about survival, even though it really is about survival, it's about thriving, quality of life, respect, um, and, and what we want the world to look like, right? People think about, when they think about palliative care and chronic illness, they think about dying, but it's not really just about dying, it's about living. There is a lot of life between where I am now and the time I will die, hopefully, And whether I have an illness or not, um, I hopefully will have input on how I live my life each moment until I die. And that's what good palliative care addresses. And in the same way, as a planetary citizen, we have a lot of threats and challenges um, and obstacles ahead of us in terms of planetary well-being, but we have a communal planetary choice as a human village, as a global village, on how we are going to live out these next decades, hopefully hundreds of years, Um, but it is a choice. And it's all about how we want to optimize that quality of life.
0: Yes, that's wonderful. And it reminds me of something else you said, I'm just looking back through my notes, but about uh, one of the things that um, is part of the treatment in a palliative sense is helping individuals align their values with how they are living and what's important to them with how they spend their time, what's uh, most important with what they focus on. I think you were saying some, some things related to that. And it seems like that too could be one of the treatments, more or less, of a palliative approach to planetary health. Um, because as you've said, we, we are dependent. We do need comfort, the comfort of, of a stable world, the comfort of um, less uh, fear about the future the uh, reliance on clean air clean water housing food um, stable oceans etc so perhaps that would be an aspect as well
1: yeah i absolutely agree and, and some of it is just taking time and, and beth i think this sounds so simple in a way and i don't mean to oversimplify But I think so much, and some of it is, I still struggle with this. I still struggle with making the the intellectual connections between everything we're talking about and how that translates into informed changes in my practice and then how I live not just as a a nurse and a leader, but also as a concerned citizen. And, you know, recent, this is only in the last month or two, I've actually been having these moments where I I live close to Central Park in Manhattan. So, um, you know, I'm very grateful that I have the opportunity to Um, you know, take a five minute walk to have open space and greenery and trees. And I I walk up by the uh, Central Park Reservoir and it's one of the most open spaces in Manhattan. And I've actually been reflecting lately as I go for that walk, there's a, there's one place on the reservoir at the far end of the, on the Northern end where you can literally, you have almost a 360 view of these high rises around this gorgeous open, man-made, um, water space with all of these trees. And you, it's one of those places where I can truly feel the impact of this city. When you're seeing all of the, the skyscrapers, they're continuing to build. I mean, they're just filling every possible space and I can literally feel the burden of these skyscrapers on this open space. And it's, um, it's really started to trouble me actually and I'm a I'm a New York City boy like born and raised so I've lived here my whole life and it's really just recently that I am actually starting to have a physical reaction to seeing how this little space of nature that exists in in the city which is man-made to begin with it just is has is, feels so encroached upon by city a, a Continually growing city that, um, you know, I sometimes question is sustainable in the long run. Um, yeah,
0: that's that's really interesting. I, I didn't mention that in the early '90s I worked in Manhattan for a year at New York Hospital in the ICU, CV ICU. And um, I have spent most of my life in Montana. And it's the opposite of that. It's where Mm -hmm. we're surrounded by intact wilderness and incredible forests and rivers. And the oddities are cities. In fact, there aren't any cities. I live in the second largest city, and it's about 70,000 people. So it's very much the opposite of, of New York City. But I was very curious about about urban life. And so I said, well, I might as well go to the biggest city then. So I went to New York City as a traveling nurse and was fascinated, utterly fascinated. I loved loved being there. I would work night shift and I woke up about noon because I could never sleep and would hit the streets. I got to know the subway system and every corner of Manhattan, at least, and a little bit outside of the city. And I noticed that it took me about six months. After about six months, what I started to see more than anything else was that the buildings were gray, mostly gray, because they're mostly concrete at that time, or not concrete, but granite or whatever they were made of, and also the the sharp edges, just that there were corners, and it, as I say, it took me a period of time before I recognized that I was so used to more, um, you know, curves and natural shapes and color and vibrancy and changing through the through the seasons, etc. And you know, I never had intended to live in a in an intensely urban area for very long, but it was a fabulous experience for me. And I rem I can remember the day I was walking somewhere like up around East Eightieth, I think, and um, and I was like, oh yes. And as soon as I noticed it, that's all I could see for the rest of my time there was really the predominance of the buildings. So I I recognized your feeling a little bit.
1: Yeah, and I think it's odd to me because I have lived here my whole life. That, and it's and it's really since living in Africa. I mean, you know, I had such access. It was the first time in my life living there. I mean, it, I mean, when I say it changed how I see the world, it really did. Um, because I never had access to nature like that. Um, you know, I, I didn't grow up in a, a camping, nature, hike kind of family, and um, so to be in a place where I. Could drive for an hour and be in Rolling Hills, and um, you know, just going outside with fresh air, and and uh, I think just a totally different way of life. Watching that, having the opportunity to watch that, in com- in communion with nature as opposed to separate from it, was so informative, and and it has changed. Let's just say I think my time in New York is limited. <laughs> 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 I've been craving nature more than I ever have in my life yeah. um, because of that experience so that's so interesting
0: um i we have taken I've taken a lot of your time I just want to back up to one point that I think is really crucial since since we are nurses and this podcast is for nurses and it was something you said um, about in palliative care generally speaking that you see that nurses are really at the forefront of this because we're we are there are so many of us I mean, 50% of the healthcare infrastructure you said, and I think often of it as about 30 million nurses globally. And so that piece of power is very interesting to me that palliative care can rehumanize, is rehumanizing the healthcare system. Nurses are at the forefront of that. Again, to put that on top of this planetary experience and this idea of, of a palliative approach to um, planetary health recovery uh, renewal and the role of nurses, because this is something I work on a lot, not only through Annie, the Alliance of Nurses for Healthy Environment, through my own research, also uh, helping with the Nurses Climate Challenge, working on CHANT, the Climate Health and Nursing Tool, working now on Nurses Drawdown, and we're really trying to engage nurses globally on that. I, I wanted to get your thoughts on what you said uh, in our conversation about nurses being at the forefront of rehumanizing the health system through our closeness to patients in uh, and communities in palliative care for, in this example. And I just wondered what your thoughts were about the role role and power and impact of nurses in what we were talking about regarding palliative care as a potential model for really helping um, restore planetary health as well.
1: So. Listen, I think this is this is the international year of the nurse and midwife. It's uh, I, I think it's the first time we have a chief nurse in the World Health Organization. It is, um, yes, you know we're the most predominant profession in the healthcare workforce, and I think the goals in palliative care um, are that every nurse really understand how to deliver primary palliative care, right? There is a need for specialist palliative care with really advanced illness with difficult to manage symptomatology, but every nurse, uh, you know, has the potential and, and in many settings already is delivering primary palliative care. They just don't have the language to give to it, that that's what they're doing. And I think that, um, the whole idea of rehumanization, I think, to me, palliative care is nursing. You know, palliative care—that holistic approach to care—is a nursing paradigm. It's what Nightingale did. Um, she was a holistic, integrative nurse. Um, it's what so many of our forerunners have done. It's what our nurse theorists have talked about: um, the human condition, human caring, um, compassionate care. It's what the Chief Nurse Officer of Press Ganey. Um, has talked about. She talks about compassion as the antidote to suffering, the antidote to the problems in the healthcare system. Um, looking at how, when we're looking at press, Ganey surveys and patient satisfaction scores, what we're really measuring is compassion. Um, and so I think that <clears throat> palliative care is one of the tools and paradigms we have to help people demonstrate that compassion in the healthcare setting Um, And in that way, rehumanize it. And I think because it's the International Year of the Nurse and Midwife, because there is such a spotlight on nurses um, and midwives around the world, um, we are in this really uh, special time of raising our visibility, raising our profile, being able to speak to what it is we do to make sure that people understand that it is nurses that... Um, help them be seen as fully seeing, thinking, feeling human beings in the healthcare system. Um, that it is nurses who are going to help them tell their story and their narrative and attend to that. Um, and I think it's nurses who are going to help make the connections um, for people between good palliative care, compassion in the healthcare system, and their environmental determinants and how it's affecting them, right? It's nurses who have that, that um, in large part, storytelling capacity to be able to kind of quote unquote report back, have these conversations, say, you know, as I'm caring for people in the field, I'm seeing how environmental changes and planetary health is affecting people's access to get care, people's quality of life, people's um, mental outlook on how they feel about their world. Um, And I think that, I think because we are such a large part of the workforce, if nurses don't find their voice in being able to do that, um, nothing's going to shift in the system. Nothing's going to shift in the system. Um, And health and well-being is just such a huge component of all of the global agendas of our time, the Sustainable Development Goals, you know, SDG 3, Good Health and Well-Being is... You know what I often call one of the two major common threads throughout all 17 of their of the goals. Um, Health is is the great connector um, among all of these goals and the environment and the planet. And so, if we're talking about health and universal access to health and universal access to high quality, safe, effective, equitable health, um, you need the numerical power that the nursing workforce has. Um, And so, everything you're doing with AH AHE and And all of the other initiatives is just so um, it's just so crucial to this conversation, the connections between what it's going to mean to rehumanize care and helping people to understand how they are impacted by and how they impact the planet around them.
0: Well, Billy, it's been just great to talk to you. It's it's really interesting. And I'd like to pick your brain more, though. Not at this time, because I've already taken a lot of your time, Um, but Uh, thank you so much for spending the time with me today. And is there anything else you'd like to say?
1: Uh, Just, I I just want to say thank you to, um, Every nurse who listens, I want to thank you for your work. Wishing everybody a happy International Year of the Nurse and Midwife, and really to uh, encourage everybody to put that out there and really help uh, celebrate it in their communities and their institutions and among their colleagues. Um, This really is the year that we are being celebrated by all of the major organizations that um, represent us, support us, and advocate for good health everywhere. So it's, it's really the year to put ourselves out there.
0: Fabulous. Thank you so much, Billy.
1: Thank you so much, Beth.
0: Thank you so much to Billy Rosa, especially for the unannounced thought explorations. I knew he would be good at that. That was fun. And such a good reminder that one of the primary contributions we make as nurses is to help people live the best lives they can, wherever they are in wellness or recovery palliative care as a transformative engine with nurses at the wheel is exciting and promising. I really appreciate Billy's enthusiasm for this and his ability to explain and engage with others on it. Thank you again to Billy Rosa and thank you all for listening today. This and other episodes of the Nurses for Healthy Environments podcast can be found at environ.org and please leave a review for us wherever you get your podcasts. Talk to you next time.